0: We've worshipped him in song. We've worshipped him in prayer. Now, let's worship him in the reading of his word. If you would stand with me, and if you don't have a Bible, don't panic. There's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 988 for our scripture reading of Matthew 26, 1 through 16. We stand because we're when we read the Bible, God is speaking to us. And as our creator of all things and Lord of all things, we stand ready to not only hear from him, but to serve him as he speaks to us. Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they said they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us, that reveals who you are, and in light of that, who we are. We thank you, Lord, that we can live in a country where we have many Bibles, and there's one in every pew in this church. We hold it in our hands, but Lord, it's you speaking to us. And so prepare our hearts. May we approach the preaching of the word to behold you in all your glory, in all your grace. May you use Pastor Bruce, uh, anoint him with your spirit, and may he be hidden that we may hear and see only you and your son exalted by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: we began this morning, I want to invite you to pull out your bulletin insert and follow along, take notes. And as you do, I hope you will keep your Bibles open here in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in Matthew's gospel here of chapters Matthew 26 through 28 as we go through this series, The Passion of the Cross. In fact, it's interesting, Matthew's gospel has actually been called a passion story with just a very long introduction. In other words, right here in Matthew 26, 27, and 28, we now come to the, to, the, to the heart of Christ's passion. His passion for you, as it leads Him to the cross, where He dies for us. In fact, as much as Jesus' birth matters, as much as His miracles matter, His parables matter, His prophecies matter, what matters most is what we're going to be focusing on for the next 10 Sundays. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, I want to begin with this question. What difference does the cross of Christ make to the way you live today? What difference does the cross of Jesus Christ make to the way you live your life today? For many people, the answer to that question is simple. No difference at all. After all, it's, it's a mere fact of history. No more life-changing than, the, let's say, the death of Socrates or the death of Martin Luther King or even the death of Ronald Reagan. To most people, they just simply live, they work their, they work, they raise their families, they grow old and finally die without being impacted at all or in any way by the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross over 2,000 years ago. Of course, we here this morning, when I say we, I'm speaking to us, us who claim to be Christ followers. We as Christ followers, we answer differently. We believe that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the center of human history. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins to secure life beyond death for his followers. And so even now, we are banking our eternal destiny on Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. But it seems that still many Christians are missing something important when they think about the cross. We tend to think that the final day of Jesus' life On the cross, we think of it only in terms of the future. In the terms of our eternal destiny. You know, after we die and when we go to heaven. But what about now? What about the time that we live before we die and enter into eternity? Does the cross of Christ make any difference for us now? And the answer is a resounding yes. The cross didn't change only the future, but also everything about the present. In other words, when it comes to the cross of Christ, here's what we need to know from the outset of this series. And it's in your notes coming up on the screen, is that Christ's final day changes your every day. Christ's final day changes your every day. The cross of Christ is the reality that gives shape to the way we live every day as Christ's followers. Now, as we look at Christ's passion through the eyes of Matthew, one of his disciples, we're going to see that Jesus was betrayed for you. He was abandoned for you. He was arrested for you. He was unjustly tried for you. He was beaten for you. He was mocked for you. And ultimately, he was crucified for you on that cross. And you may be asking, why would anybody do that for me? Well, so that you could be redeemed from your sins. And so that you, yes, could be, receive eternal, the gift of eternal life. And so that your life could be transformed even now, today. In other words, Christ's final day changes your every day. So in light of Christ's passion for you, Matthew begins this whole section. Here in Matthew 26, he, he launches it by confronting us, by challenging us with the worth of Jesus Christ. How much is Jesus worth to you? What price would you put on it? What price would you put on Jesus? What is his worth? That's the question Matthew wants us to grapple with. He wants us to contemplate as he tells the drama of Christ's passion for you. And before we answer this question, we need to first begin with the setting of all of this. How it begins here in Matthew chapter 26 that actually leads Jesus to the cross. And so notice the setting of it all. Jesus actually, and this is phenomenal, he predicts his crucifixion will take place during Passover. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Matthew tells us here, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be what? Crucified. And so Matthew is giving us some insight here. He's telling us that Jesus' teaching ministry is now over. It's done with. And his suffering is about to begin. So this is a transition. There are actually five major teaching sections in the book of Matthew in which Jesus teaches his disciples. Five major sections. But now it's time for his greatest message of all. One which will be lived out on the cross. And this is what makes Jesus utterly unique from any other person who's ever lived, and any other person who claims to be some type of savior or founder of other religions, is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, although he was. In fact, we are told in Matthew that he spoke with authority, the authority of God himself. So he's, he's even beyond just a normal good teacher. But what makes him even that is he is the savior. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah who was came To suffer and die. And this is why Jesus came. This is why he was born. And so Jesus tells his disciples here in verse 2 you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, in reference to himself, will be delivered up to be crucified. He's telling his disciples this. In fact, this is amazing because Jesus' power to predict his own death proves what? Proves his deity. It proves his deity. It proves he is the son of God as he has claimed all throughout the gospel of Matthew here. In fact, this is the fourth and final time Jesus actually makes this specific prediction. The first was in Matthew 16 verse 21 where he said from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where he would suffer many things From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, also understand here, the timing of Christ's death is no accident. We'll actually see this a little more in detail next Sunday. But the timing of all this is no accident. Jesus says it will happen specifically, that is his crucifixion, when? He says during what? During Passover. Now, Passover is this annual feast, this annual celebration of God's deliverance of His people out of slavery in Egypt. And again, we'll look at this a little more next Sunday. And this celebration would have gathered on an annual basis thousands upon thousands of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, to the city of Jerusalem all over, from all over the nation. Now the name Passover, it comes from the way that God's death angel passed over the houses of the Israelites who had sacrificed a lamb. In fact, a, and there were requirements about this lamb, a lamb without spot, a lamb without blemish. And then they would sacrifice the lamb and take the blood and sprinkle it on their doorpost. But that death angel passed over those Israelites who, who fulfilled that, obeyed that specific command, but killed the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. In fact, if you want to take time this afternoon, this week, to read about it, you go to Exodus chapter 12, and you can read about the Passover story there. But the ultimate reason, here's what I want you to get. The ultimate reason that Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem this year was not just to celebrate a past event. This year, he was going to actually fulfill the meaning of Passover. Because in just a few days, he will actually become that spotless lamb, that perfect lamb. He will become the lamb, the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world through his death on the cross. And so this, this has been Jesus' mission from the beginning. And because Jesus predicts his own death, you know what that means? He's also in control of it. He is in control of all the events that are taking place during this Passion Week. Jesus predicts that he will be delivered up to be crucified. And you know what? That is exactly what happens. So get this. Jesus is not caught by surprise here in Jerusalem by the events that are getting ready to transpire. Rather, he is completely in control of what's happening. The events of Christ's passion are not some tragic accident in which a, a quote, good man was just trapped by political forces that he somehow didn't understand or didn't see coming. Oh, no, no. It is just the opposite. This is all part of God's plan of redemption through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, how do we respond to all this? If this is true, and it is, then what should our response be? How how should we respond to Christ's passion for us? How much is Jesus' sacrifice actually worth to you? And what Matthew does for us, he lays out three scenarios in which we are to contemplate, we are to see this, and then put ourselves in the story and say, is that me, or is that me, or is that me? Because we're in the story. We are to see ourselves in the story here. So the answer to the question, how should I respond, is found now in these three different responses that Matthew lays out. Notice them. We see this. First of all, the Jewish leaders act with this sneaky malice. They act with this sneaky malice. While Jesus is openly expressing how he is about to freely give himself to be delivered up over to death, the religious elites are plotting to beat him to the punch. Look what it says in verses 3 through 5. Look in your Bibles. Look at it. it says, Then the chief priests and the elders, these are the Jewish leaders of the day, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast. What feast? The feast of Passover. Lest there be an uproar among the people. So here's the setting of it all. Here's what's going on. The Jewish leaders have been dreaming of the day to kill Jesus for several years now. They've been dreaming about this opportunity. After all, they hated Jesus. I mean, they were jealous of the miracles that he performed. They were jealous of his popularity with the people. They saw Jesus as a threat to their own positions of power that they had at the hands of the Roman government. They're afraid now that Jesus will come as this revolutionary and stir up a revolution and that the Romans will now come and take away their power that they have over the Jewish people. In fact, here's what John, you go to John's version of the story, here's what he says about it all in John 11, 47 and 48. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, man, what are we to do? In other words, what are we going to do about this guy? For this man, he performs many signs, many miracles. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place In other words, our positions of power and our nation. So when you're greedy and when you're power hungry, what do you do? You do what these guys did. They plotted to arrest Jesus, but to do it by stealth and to kill him and to do so after the Passover week, not during the feast. Why? Why? Because they wanted to avoid an uproar among the people, the Jewish people, that had now gathered to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. After all, these are the people who are, are you know, that Jesus is popular with. They do not want to necessarily see Jesus be crucified and died. But these Jewish leaders, they have no idea that their diabolical plan is all part, get this, of God's sovereign plan. Notice this in your notes. The cross is God's plan, not the Jewish leader's plan. You see, Jesus' death may have been plotted by evil men, but get this, it was planned by a sovereign God. Matthew puts Jesus' prediction of his death before the Jewish leader's plot to kill him. Why? Because Matthew wants to emphasize something to us here. And that is that God is using this great evil for our salvation and most of all for the glory of God. You see, this has been God's plan. Do you realize before the foundation or before the creation of the world? That Christ would come and that Christ would die on the cross for our sins. This means all of Jesus' enemies ...are acting according to God's sovereign plan of redemption of mankind. Peter himself. You remember Peter, one of his disciples. We'll actually look at him in more detail in the weeks to come. But after all of this, he actually declares in a sermon... ...that he's preaching to some of these Jewish leaders. And he says in Acts chapter 2, he says... ...men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God... With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And later on, Peter would even write in his own epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In other words, get this when you read this in Matthew's account and even in the other gospel accounts of what's transpiring in Jesus' life, it is not by accident. Evil men may have plotted the death. Judas may betray Jesus. But all of this is planned by the sovereign God that we worship. In fact, John MacArthur says it this way From the standpoint of the Jewish leaders, the Passover was the worst possible time for them to take direct action against Jesus, especially to put him to death. But Passover was the time God had chosen. When by God's sovereign allowance, Jesus' enemies finally succeed in putting him to death, it was at the very time they most wanted to avoid. So just think, by God's plan, Jesus is going to die at the hands of sinful men for sinful men like us. It's astounding. So what's your response to Christ's passion for you? The Jewish leaders act with this sneaky malice and hatred toward Jesus. Notice the second response. This woman, whose name is Mary, acts with costly love. She acts with costly love. Now, this is one of the greatest acts of love that is ever told in the scriptures. It is short, it's told in two simple verses, but let me tell you, it is spectacular look at it again in verses six through seven it says now when jesus was at bethany in the house of simon the leper a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask a very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table now john's account the apostle john you go to his gospel and you can read the same story there And he gives us a little more insight to this story. And his account of this event helps us to know that this actually took place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Simon, the house of Simon here in Bethany, was likely a a relative who has been healed of prophecy. And so while Jesus and his disciples are at Simon's house having dinner, this woman comes. And we know from John's account that her name is Mary. She's Mary she took an alabaster jar or flask containing a very expensive oil or ointment. Think of it in terms of perfume. And she pours it on Jesus' head while he's reclining at this table with his disciples to eat. And then according to John 12, we know further what else she did. She not only pours it on Jesus' head, but she pours it on his feet. And she undoes her hair. And what does she do? She begins to wipe. This ointment with her hair on his feet. This oil or perfume. Let me tell you, would have been extremely uh, fragrant, aromatic. So the whole house, if you can imagine this, would have been filled with this fragrance. And both actions by this woman are very extravagant of what she does here. After all, the perfume was very expensive. Very, very expensive perfume. This kind of perfume was typically a family treasure. In fact, it was kept in a sealed alabaster jar or flask that you could only open by breaking it. So what that means is you could only open it once. John says it was worth about 300 denarii, something like $10,000 today or a full year's wages in Jesus' day. That's the value of this. It's expensive. The action of undoing her hair in public to wipe Jesus' feet was a surprising display of humility and affection for Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in this story is not that Matthew just highlights that, and he does, but he also wants us to see the reaction or the response of Jesus' disciples to it all. Because his disciples, get this, the 12 of them, they've missed the significance of what is happening right before them at the table. They are clueless. Notice how they respond in verses 8 through 9. It says, When the disciples saw it, what were they? It says, They were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And so they respond with indignation, which simply means to be angered or to be outraged such that it looks like you're in grief. But you're not really in grief. You're just indignant by it all. In fact, they view her actions as a waste. And they cover their lack of spiritual perception by now trying to sound spiritual now if, if you haven't caught on we're all guilty of that that is us to a t in fact this is the epitome these disciples show for us the epitome of spiritual deception. When you you miss the spiritual significance of something, but you sound spiritual while you miss it. And that's what's going on with these disciples, and that is us. The moment here is completely lost on them, and so Jesus responds to his own disciples, and he does so with shock and awe. In fact, what's interesting is in Matthew chapter 26 here and 27 is a whole bunch of shock and awe. It is full of shock and awe. And you get the first glimpse of it right here in verses 10 through 13. Look what Jesus says now. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, his disciples, why do you trouble the woman? So, don't you've you got to love this. Jesus is immediately standing up for this woman. He's defending her. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So I want you to know Jesus' response is twofold. He does two things immediately. Two things here. First of all, Jesus rebukes his own disciples. He rebukes his own disciples when he says, why do you trouble this woman? It's it's no different. It's like a a father going to an older son or sibling and saying, why are you troubling your little brother or sister? What's up with that? What's going on? You should know better. This is wrong. So you understand. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's rebuking. Why are you troubling? Why are you giving her such a hard time? The disciples troubled the woman. Because in their own minds, in their own heart, they thought that the perfume poured on Jesus was what? A total waste. And and let's be honest here. In one sense, the disciples are right. After all, the perfume, it could have been sold for a rather large sum of money and given to the poor. That is true. But they are completely wrong to think that what she did was a waste. Her actions declared her love for Jesus Christ and put his worth on display for everyone in the house to see and smell. We talked about the sweet smell of victory last Sunday. This is the sweet smell of devotion for Jesus Christ. The sweet smell of worship. Of what she does. Her actions declare to her Savior, Jesus, you are worthy of my all. This is everything I have. And I give it to you. You are worthy of it. And then Jesus, after rebuking the disciples, he praises the woman. When he declares, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And that is the key. The key phrase to all of this is those two little words when Jesus says, to me because without the to me in this let me tell you her actions would have been a complete waste if she would have done this to let's say peter or john and one of the other disciples it would have been an enormous waste of money there's nothing special about those guys but jesus declares that she has done something beautiful In other words, her act is noble, it's worthy. What she did with this is a beautiful thing. Why? Because Jesus says, she has done it to me, me. In the Old Testament, kings and prophets were oftentimes anointed with oil. In fact, the long-awaited Messiah is sometimes referred to as the anointed. That's what Messiah means. And so amazingly, get this, this is amazing here, Mary knew who Jesus was better than his own disciples did. She caught it. Her actions showed that she understood who Jesus was as the long-awaited, anointed Messiah, and she acted accordingly. She acted with costly love. She acted with everything she had. So how then should... We properly understand Mary's extravagant act of love. Well, Jesus explains it for; us. he helps us to, to contextualize. He helps us even understand the significance of this moment here. He does two things. Notice, first of all, first of all, he he prioritized her act of love as a unique moment in history. We see this when Jesus says in verses eleven and twelve, "For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me." In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So is Jesus saying his disciples should re, should neglect the poor? Is perhaps Jesus saying, "Hey, telling disciples, hey, you know, you can't really do anything about poverty, so don't even bother trying"? Is that what Jesus is telling his disciples? No, absolutely not. I mean, Jesus himself, we know this from the Gospels here was certainly concerned for the poor. After all, he fed them. He even healed them. Even though he knew more people would become hungry and sick. In fact, Jesus even quotes part of Deuteronomy fifteen eleven here in his answer. And you go to that passage and here's what it says. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. So what then is Jesus saying? What does he mean by all this? He's simply saying that what Mary did, that this action and this time frame is a unique moment in history in which, listen, I am here. After all, he said, Mary did this to what? To me. And now he says, I'm here. I'm the son of God. I'm the one walking through Passion Week on the way to the cross to be the sacrificial lamb to fulfill the Passover. This is a unique moment in history, never to be repeated. He says, for you always have the poor with you. That is true. But you will not always have me. That is in the flesh incarnate. And so as the hour of Jesus' death approaches... He is saying it's time to lay aside for a moment your duty to the poor, for Jesus would never be with them in this way again. And the reason Mary's actions were so beautiful in the eyes of Jesus is that she understood all this. She understood the uniqueness of the moment and acted accordingly like the disciples should have. Jesus says that when Mary poured the perfume on his body, She did it to prepare me for what? His burial. James Boyce, who has since passed away, pastor and author, he says, the only way to appreciate what she did is to recognize that she alone, of all the followers of Jesus, understood that Jesus was about to give his life for us on the cross. And that's what Mary understood. Here's the lesson That I think we can take away even for us today, though, beyond just this moment in history, and that is caring for the poor is important. Caring for the poor and the needy, the least of these is important. Jesus taught just in fact he just got through talking about this previously in the previous chapter. But also don't miss this truth. Loving Jesus is more important. In fact, loving Jesus is our highest priority. And so while loving Jesus and loving others, whether they're poor or part of the family of God, while they are both important, not equally so. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, verses 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And Mary demonstrates this radical commitment. She shows the church, us here, the gathered body of Christ, that Jesus must be first in our lives, our highest priority, above money, above mother, above the home, and even above the homeless. Why? Because our love for Jesus is the basis of our good works that goes out horizontally. Listen, if Jesus is not at the center of our good works, then we have simply an impotent social gospel with no Savior. It's all works, but no power to save the soul. But then Jesus does something else to help us understand Mary's act here. He not only prioritized it all, but he also memorialized her act of love as a pattern for us today. Look what he says in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so her sacrificial love meant so much to Jesus that he now makes her story... A permanent fixture of the gospel wherever it is proclaimed throughout the world. And you say, how do you know? Because it's recorded right here in the gospels for us. We're we're proclaiming it even now. Over 2,000 years later. We're fulfilling this prophecy now. Just think. The sweet perfume that filled Simon's house. Do you get this? Now fills the four corners of the world. And yet, Mary's act of love, don't miss this, oh, don't miss this, is actually a pattern. It's an example for us today of the kind of worship that God wants each of us to give to Him. Because he's the highest priority in our lives. Listen, her worship, first of all, was based on faith. She sat at Jesus' feet and she listened to him. She heard what Jesus said about his own death and believed. Her actions were based on faith in Jesus' word. Her worship was loving. She cherished Jesus and sought to honor him. She poured out this costly perfume out of a heart full of love for Jesus. And so the beauty of her actions was actually in the love That she had for Jesus Christ. Her worship was sacrificial. True love is always reflected in sacrifice. In Mary, what did she do? She willingly gave her all. Her worship, not only that, it recognized the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all. Oh, that our worship today would reflect Mary's love for the Savior. The third response to the passion of Christ is a rather shocking contrast to Mary's act of costly love, where we see number three, Judas. Judas is now introduced, and he acts with greedy betrayal. And we'll look more fully into the betrayal of Judas in the coming weeks, but for now, Matthew simply wants to introduce to us what happened, and it is rather revealing and tragic. From the very beginning, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Again, this is nothing shocking to Jesus. This does not catch him off guard. And so it is rather remarkable that Jesus chose Judas even though he knew what the outcome would be. Which just again goes to show us that Judas' betrayal is all part of God's plan of suffering for his son and redemption for his people. And here we see how Judas would now fulfill his role as the betrayer. After the so-called waste of the perfume, Matthew tells us in verses 14 through 16, look at it with me, then one of the 12. In other words, Matthew wants to emphasize here that this could have easily been any one of them. because all the twelve thought this was a waste, Judas takes it to the next level, and now he seeks to betray the Son of God. He was one of the twelve. He's one of them. He was with them. He was walked with Jesus, walked with the disciples, and yet he's the one. And so how close and yet how far he was from Christ. Who here among us has a heart of betrayal? One of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so while one group of men, the Jewish leaders sought to plot to kill Jesus, another man actually makes a part of that plot now possible. Why? Well, we know one reason why. Maybe not the full reason why, but at least a big reason part of it was greed filled the heart of Judas. In fact, speaking of Judas, you go to John chapter 12, verse 6, and it says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself out of that bag to what was put into it. But notice what Matthew emphasizes here. Matthew's take on the same story has a different emphasis Matthew highlights, and he emphasizes for us, he wants us to see the actual price of the betrayal. And what is it? It's 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver is a rather, it's, it's an interesting sum of money. Because if you go to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver is the fine a man must pay if his ox accidentally gores a slave to death. You know what that means? Well, first of all, this is the value placed on a slave, but not just any slave. What kind of slave? One who is dead. 30 pieces of silver is the price you pay. If you're an ox, accidentally kills a slave. Isn't it ironic? Jesus, I mean Judas, Judas here, he bristled. Became indignant that Mary spent 300 denarii, a year's wages, to anoint Jesus who would become the Lamb of God. And then he's willing to betray Jesus for a measly 120 denarii. About four months worth of wages. As John Stott writes, Mary showed uncalculating generosity while Judas drove a calculated bargain. And so it is stunning to consider the fact that Judas not only initiated the betrayal, but he was willing to betray Jesus for this paltry amount. Is Jesus worth no more than a slave and a dead one at that to him? What a contrast Matthew sets up for us here between the actions of Mary and the actions of Judas. You see, Mary loved Jesus with this. Stunning extravagance. While Judas betrayed Jesus with this self-centered greed, their actions reveal what they really believe Jesus is worth. Now, lest we see Judas and Mary as people in historical past, we need to put ourselves in the story. That's what Matthew wants us to do here. That's what he's challenging us to do. Put yourself in the scenario. How would you respond? And the way to do that, to help us to do that, is to ask a question of ourselves that hangs over all three of these stories, these scenarios here. And that is, what is Jesus worth to you? What is your price? Name it. anybody brave enough to do so you see the jewish leaders they said jesus is worth more dead than alive and so they put supreme value why on their positions of power in society judas on the other hand he loved money and so he priced jesus at the paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver but mary mary loved jesus Therefore, she valued Jesus above all and gave her all in response. And so each of us now, we must ask, what about me? This isn't just a story about the Jewish leaders and Mary and Judas. This is a story about us. So what about you? What about me? What value do I place on Jesus Christ? What is Jesus worth to you? And here's what I want you to take away. Glean from this. Embrace this truth. See it. If Jesus' passion shows us anything, it shows us that He is worth everything. Everything. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you are not a Christ follower as of yet. We are not here just telling you to Just submit to Christ and make your life all about Him. We are saying, through the Passion Week of Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of Matthew, we are saying, look at Christ. See His passion for you and see what He's done for you. Listen, He suffered and died on the cross for you so that you could be saved from your sins and so that your life could be changed even now today. But if you are a Christ follower, you are a Christian, that's what you claim. That is, you have seen the logic, the beautiful logic of the cross, and you've embraced the beautiful, glorious love of Jesus Christ through faith in him, but you would have to admit, you know what, I'm playing it a little safe with Jesus. I'm playing it safe. Or you've grown complacent. You've grown, perhaps even burnt out. Your relationship with Jesus doesn't often, if ever, resemble Mary's. Then, let me tell you something. You don't, you don't just need to see Mary in her example and compare yourself to her and then feel bad and feel guilty and then just go out of here and try harder to please Jesus. No, no, no. What you need more than anything is to see Jesus Christ. You need to see His worth. You need to see His passion for you and to see that He is worth everything. Listen, the reason that we are reluctant to give our all to Jesus, the reason we have yet to sell out to Jesus, to give everything to Him, the reason we have hold back a part of our lives is because we haven't fully seen what jesus is worth we've lost sight of the cost that he has paid for us richard shibbs who you, you don't know but he gives this advice but he gives it from get this the year 1630 but it still echoes true today he writes, when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way is to warm ourselves at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. And that's what stirred Mary's affections for Jesus. Listen, that is the only thing that will stir our affections for Jesus. When we begin to see Christ's extravagant love for you, that's when we will begin to show our extravagant love. For him, by pouring out ourselves and everything about us in worship to him. Frederick Bruner describes this passage in Matthew. He calls it a, a call to worship as we approach the Passion of Christ to the cross. And he writes, It is a portal leading into the Passion, which says the best way to enter this holy ground is like this woman. With a heart full of devotion. It's a call to worship. And so may this be our call as a church and as individuals as we approach Easter. And like Mary, may we, we here, may we worship Jesus with a heart full of love for our Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? And as instrumental has come, I'm going to ask him just to play through a chorus one time through to give us an opportunity to just contemplate, to think through what we have seen here, to put ourselves again in the story and to be honest with God. Where am I? What price would I put on Jesus? Am I like Mary willing to give my all or am I holding back like Judas? Because there's there's a part of me that's still greedy. I, I, I want this and that. Heavenly Father, we bow before You in awe and wonder at the glory of Your Word and the passion of Your Son. And so help us to see His passion for us. Help us to see that Jesus is worthy of everything. And may we respond like Mary did with costly love in our worship of Jesus. Forgive us for the greed and malice in our hearts and grant us the grace to follow You with everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As instrumentalists pray. Will you go before God in prayer, confess sin if need be, give praise to God as well.